This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And, you know, sometimes when we've got two guests, multiple guests on this podcast, there's some kind of thematic link, but not really this time. But I can guarantee that these are two really cool conversations. They're timely as well. First, I talked to Sarah Fryer, the excellent Bloomberg journalist who covers big tech. And there is a lot to talk about in big tech right now. For instance, Elon Musk is trying to convince advertisers not to bail on Twitter and trying to convince everyone else why they should pay $96 a year to use Twitter. He just had a press conference basically about that just now. I talked to Sarah about that. And meanwhile, Musk and many other big tech CEOs are engaged in really big layoffs. So I talked to Sarah about all of that and what happens next and sort of where we are in sort of big tech's life cycle. And then speaking of life cycle, I talked about Wakanda Forever. It's the big new Marvel movie out this week with Jason Concepcion. He is one of my favorite bloggers and podcasters. He specializes in pop culture, particularly the really nerdy stuff. And I first started listening to him when he was at The Ringer, and now he's at Crooked Media, where he hosts X-Ray Vision, excellent podcast, and has side gigs doing stuff like a House of the Dragon podcast for HBO. I had him on because he really loves deep nerdy pop culture stuff. And I wanted to get a status check from him about the state of Marvel movies, but really comic book movies, big IP movies in general. It's the thing we've been getting primarily now for, for more than a decade. when we go to movie theaters, I want to know why these movies have become popular, why they stay popular. And if they're going to stay popular, there's a theory now that we're kind of ending uh, the, this phase of, of audience infatuation with everything Marvel and everything comic book. If that's the case, what happens next? I've wanted to talk to Jason forever, so I'm glad we got to do it here. I'm also psyched to talk to Sarah Fryer, so let's have that conversation right now. I'm here with Sarah Fryer, who runs big tech coverage for Bloomberg, which means she's having a very busy day because there's layoffs and Twitter news, and I want to talk about all of that. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on, by the way, on a busy day. You and I are both listening to Elon Musk's call that was, in theory, aimed at advertisers, but there were more than 100,000 people listening to this Twitter Spaces event. So more than advertisers are listening to that. What was your takeaway of what Elon Musk was telling advertisers today? So some of it was really basic stuff, right? Like he wants... He wants it to be a place where people can come together and and share and humanity will become better because of all of these different perspectives. And we want advertising to be relevant. So we want it to be timely and it wanted to feel like content. Like all this stuff is stuff that has been said in the industry for years. And, and perhaps um, Musk is just getting a crash course on that. But there was also a bunch of it that felt like he was throwing spaghetti at the wall, uh, where he started talking about payments. He, he said, okay, well, maybe we'll start letting you use the revenue you make as creators to pay people on Twitter. Actually, maybe we'll just seed your bank accounts with $10 to get you started. Actually, maybe we'll connect Twitter to your bank account. Maybe we'll, we'll open a money manager and you'll have a great high-yield savings account. And then you'll want to move your money to Twitter 
and it was just like, you know, and on and on and on. He had all these ideas that started as nuggets of a problem. And then he would just build it and build it and build it. And imagine you are a Twitter employee who's now, you know, half your coworkers are gone. And all of these ideas are out there in the world. And Elon wants them like yesterday. So it seems like a pretty chaotic time to be an employee of Twitter, a user of Twitter, an advertiser for Twitter. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you heard him at the very end when, when the advertisers were like, okay, well, how do we solve problems if they come up? And Muscle was like, well, just tweet at me. Yes, he's very much uh, thinking on the fly, and that really shouldn't be a surprise at this point. I mean, we saw, you know, he wanted to spend $44 billion on this in April and then decided he didn't and then bought it and doesn't have anyone really working for him uh, at the moment or any of the top people who were at Twitter. But just for context, remind us why he is speaking to advertisers. He had another call that was very similar to this, I believe, last week for about 100 advertisers. Um, why is Elon Musk talking to advertisers in general and trying to make them feel assured about his ownership. Musk has to pay back about $1.2 billion in debt to bankers each year because he purchased Twitter for $44 billion, which is, you know, much more than he, even he thought it was worth. Yeah. And, and now he has this, like, significant debt burden, and Twitter's uh, cash flow is, is something above, like, $600 million, uh, certainly not $1.2 So he, he made these massive cuts, but now he really needs to drive revenue as these advertisers are looking at how he uses the platform, which, uh, as we've all seen, is very, you know, stream of consciousness, jokey. Um, sometimes he'll he'll peddle a conspiracy theory here or there. Sometimes he'll gang up on somebody here or there. And advertisers do not like that uncertainty. And and some of them have been pulling their money out, uh, even just temporarily, to see how things are going to shake out. Uh, because the, you know this is not a good time to be in digital advertising. Period. We're seeing pullbacks in budgets, um, not just at Twitter, but at at Snap, at Meta, um, Meta just laid off. And I'm sure we're going to get to this, but Meta just just said they're laying off 11,000 employees. So, you know, Musk needs these advertisers on his side. Creating this environment of chaos is not what they want to see. And so he's trying to reassure them. How do you think he did in, in reassuring them? You know, I, I, again, I, I'm writing a story sort of as we speak. Um, and what I heard him say was similar to what I was told he said last week, which was like, hey, listen, I take this stuff seriously. I'm thoughtful about it. I want to make ads better. Things that if you're an advertiser, you would want to hear. And um, the people I talked to who heard that call last week said the call was fine. It's his behavior that freaks us out. It's his tweets. It's the fact that he had massive layoffs right after he talked to us and got rid of a bunch of his content moderation people. That's the part that skeeves us out. And the other part, and you alluded to this, we're we're pulling back on advertising in general. And also, you don't we need don't need a lot of excuses to pull your money out right. of uh, <laughs> digital advertising right now. And you don't need to be on Twitter, period. It's a subscale advertising platform. So, you know, put your money to work somewhere else. I, I also thought it was interesting that they, you know, the the person who's who was hosting the call is, is the now head of Twitter advertising. Her bosses were fired and they started the call and said, all right, Elon, what do you want to talk about? And he started off by talking about verification and his eight dollar a month 
plan and why that would defeat spam bots. And it, it was the first time I think I fully understood what he thinks he's doing there, which is that he wants pretty much everyone who uses Twitter, at least to post stuff, to pay eight bucks. Right. It'll be something like a paywall of sorts. Like he was saying, if you don't pay that $8 a month, your tweets basically won't get seen. Yes, it's he called it a mild paywall. So there there will be two even though he says he doesn't like peasants and lords, there will be two tiers of Twitter users, people who pay him so their tweets can be seen and people who don't and they'll be at the bottom of the pile under the spam. And I can see how in his brain that solves a bunch of problems and ultimately should make advertisers happy because there'll be less bad stuff there. I don't think it's it's what they want to hear. I think what they want to hear him say is I'm not going to tweet out conspiracy theories about Nancy Pelosi's husband. Um, and I don't think he's capable of doing that. Yeah, he's he said on the call that the $8 a month solution is the singular solution he sees. Uh, he, he really doesn't think that anything else is going to work. But, you know, that doesn't actually do much for verification. The, the check mark now is not going to be about verification. I think we just all have to get our heads around the fact that, like, Twitter, the way it operated as we knew it, is not how Twitter operates now. The rules are changing. The platform's changing. Everything that we think means one thing is going to mean something else in a few I weeks. think that's exactly right. And also that it could all change. He kept saying, you know, and I'll, I'll make mistakes and things will change. And if this doesn't work, we'll try something else. And and again, I know a lot of people in tech who are very sympathetic to him taking that approach to Twitter, saying, you know what? It wouldn't be the worst thing if someone who runs one of these companies moves quickly, tries stuff, makes mistakes, keeps going, pushes people to move faster. And then everyone else who's been in social media says, no, no, you can't move. You can't. This isn't like designing a piece of metal. You have to be very careful because you can cause real harm to people. Let me make an awkward pivot now from, from advertising to layoffs. Twitter had layoffs uh, last week. They fired about half their work their workforce. It's about 3,700 people. Meta announced they're laying off 11,000 people, a big chunk of their workforce. Microsoft is going to have layoffs. Companies that aren't having layoffs like Apple are having hiring freezes, which are kind of de facto shrinking their workforces. They're all different stories here, but is there a commonality that links all of the layoffs in tech um, that you see? Well, I think there is obviously the economic pressure, right? There's inflation, there's supply chain crunch, there, there is um, a strong dollar, all of those macro factors. But then when you look look at it with a magnifying glass, like Elon Musk had to lay off half of Twitter because of of this debt burden because he he has such a you know high financial commitment now uh, as a Twitter owner. You know, Twitter was was being affected by all of those macro factors, but they're also being affected now by this pressure. Um, Meta had to fire uh, the employees that fired not just because of the macro factors, but also because Mark Zuckerberg is betting the farm on the metaverse. This this idea that we'll all eventually live in virtual worlds, I mean, you know, which he doesn't, you could argue he doesn't have to do. I mean, some might argue that he does have to do that because mm-hmm. we all um, use Meta's products now on mobile phones, which are environments owned by Apple and Google. And Apple this year made, um, or I should say last year, but the, this is the first full year of changes, these changes to privacy tracking that are costing Meta um upwards of 10 billion in ad revenue and it's it's really risky for them to have their entire business based on um products that live in other companies sandboxes 
Um, so he has to he has to own the next major computing platform, and he thinks that's going to be virtual reality. But there there is no world in which that happens next year or the year after that. It's just such a a pie in the sky idea. So he's spending a ton of money on it, and he needed to cut employees because it just is way too expensive to operate Meta the way it is with the way the economy is right now. Right. And Snap had to cut because they've got digital advertising problems. One theory I hear a lot is all these companies that are laying off people, or many of them are laying off people, hired way too many people during the pandemic. And they they overestimated what the pandemic was doing for their business. They thought the trend lines that happened in the pandemic, Mark Zuckerberg said it himself uh, in his announcement about the cuts, that, you know, we, we got this wrong. We, we thought everything was going in this direction and, and we got it wrong. Another theory that that I have is that all of these big tech companies are pretty mature and they're they're regardless of the pandemic, they're just not going to grow at the rate they were. They're going to have to settle in to being slower growth companies. Uh, Do you like either one of those theories? I think there's a little bit of truth to both of them. During the pandemic, what I heard over and over from executives in big tech is like, listen, all of the acceleration of technology adoption that we thought would happen over the course of 10 years is happening over the course of like two years. Mm-hmm. You know, people are working from home, people are, um, you know, doing delivery, you know, all these things are being enabled by technology and that's great for our business. Well, it also borrowed from their future. It, it, it accelerated that growth rate, which just was unsustainable going forward. And the, and the second factor is look, Meta, its products now have more than half the world's internet connected population using them. Some of them, uh, anyway, Instagram has more than 2 billion users now. It just really isn't that much farther for them to grow. Amazon's marketplace, um, Google's search engine, like these companies, um, the, the engine that drove them for the last 10 to 15 years is not going to be the same thing that drives them for the next 10 to 15 years. And so they're hitting this economic uncertainty at the same time as they're hitting this like internal reinvention clock. And I think that it's, it's tough to do that kind of great experimentation. Like what's our next big thing? What's our big bet while you are going through this? Like, okay, well let's be careful about our spending. Let's be realistic about what we can do in this environment. And I think it puts them in a really a tough spot. Most of the people who are who are at these tech companies weren't around uh, for the 2000, 2001 bubble bursting. Many of them weren't working during the 2008 recession when tech companies also had to make some cuts, although a lot of them did really well. Can you give people who are gloomy about this a, a positive spin as we go out of this conversation? Is there anything good to come out of this retrenchment and, and, and layoffs? Layoffs are obviously personally hurtful to lots of people. Is there anything good to come out of this? One thing that I hope will happen, uh, you know, around that post-2008 recession, we just saw a lot of people have no choice but to invent new things and kind of like sit in cafes coding and and figure it out. I I wrote a book about Instagram and, you know, that culture that I I dove into just uh, of people kind of fiddling around with apps and the mobile revolution, um, coming up with ideas that might be interesting. Uh, Maybe we're going into this this period of, you know, when these employees are laid off, it's, it's really, it's awful. It's, it's disruptive. Um, but the, the majority of the, um, 
retrenchment right now. I guess it's hard to quantify, but at least the ones that we're talking about are happening in these big companies and these these employees, um, maybe some of them become entrepreneurs and try to build the next slate of consumer products or enterprise products that are just really world changing and we'll get to see what comes out of it. Because one concern for a lot of the employees getting laid off now is that there's really nowhere else that is going to hire them. However, a lot of these employees did ride the amazing growth in their share value over the last few years. A lot of them did, um, you know, put themselves in a position to um, be relatively comfortable uh, financially, even though they're laid off, which could be a a good place to um, come up with some new ideas um, and bring something fresh into the world. I don't know. But if I'm thinking about it from a a positive standpoint. And then if you if you do compare this to the year, you know, 2000-2001, the the big tech bust, that was so different because it was a lot of companies just getting obliterated, you going belly up and and closing their doors and and they just didn't exist anymore. I don't think we're at that point yet here where a lot of companies are just bankrupt and dead. Um, I think that like maybe, you know, a few months down the line, these, these companies might start hiring again if the conditions improve, you know, there is, there is still some hope there. Sarah Fryer, we're going to leave it there because you and I both have a bunch of things to do because you cover big tech. So do I. Um, thank you for joining us. We'll have you back again. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Sarah. In a minute, we're going to talk to Jason Concepcion, but first a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm talking to Jason Concepcion, writer, podcaster, author. I guess writer and author are the same thing. He's he's extraordinary (laughs) at all those things. Uh, He loves pop culture. He's great at talking about it. And I wanted to talk to him about Wakanda and about Marvel movies in general and comic book movies in general and sort of what happens next. Jason, I'm talking to you fresh from a Wakanda screening. Yes. What'd you think? I loved it. Uh, First of all, I am extremely impressed by it because of the amount of things that it needed to do. Not only transition, you know, away from T'Challa after the passing of Chadwick Boseman, but now launch the origin stories of several other characters, kind of point the way forward for that franchise as a whole and tell an engaging story and have cool action scenes. And and it did all those things. It did all those things. And I think it did it in a way that was both generous and graceful, but also really exciting and a, and a fun movie to watch. I I, I, just, I loved it. So you, you are deeply steeped in this stuff. You're someone who knows yes. that T'Challa is the Black Panther. Um if you're a normal yes. person and you know that Black Panther was a fun movie <laughs> yeah. and you've seen right, a bunch right. of Marvel movies and you maybe remember that Chadwick Boseman was in it and now he's not alive anymore. question I've always had about all these Marvel movies is do you need to read up and study? Do you need to know what's going on in the Marvel universe? 
can you come into this movie cold and enjoy it? And, and just if you're a normal, would you enjoy it? Uh, I think you can because, again, it acts as a de facto origin story for uh, several characters, namely Shuri, who we met before, uh, played by Letitia Wright in the in the previous uh, Black Panther movie and various other MCU uh, connecting films. We really dive into her character here. And then Namor, played by Tena Cuerta, who's one of the oldest Marvel characters that actually precedes the company's time calling itself Marvel. There is a giant hype machine around any movie, but it's particularly around Disney and Marvel. Um, and it's really worked, I think, up until recently. I, as I recall, there was enormous goodwill about the first Black Panther movie. People seemed mm -hmm. people who who loved this stuff really seemed to love Black Panther, and it did very well. W why was that movie particularly important to Marvel? Oh gosh! Well, first of all, historically speaking, you're talking about like the first mainstream Black superhero, one that carried his own comic for many years. That alone, you know, generations of comics fans growing up with T'Challa, who's the name of the character, uh, when not in his suit, and th that character being, you know, an inspiration and a, and a fun escape for many people over the years, I think that is, that's a big part of it. And then the inclusion in the MCU, the MCU is kind of like the biggest, it's the biggest cultural event that we have right now. And I think to include him there, not just not just T'Challa in and of itself, but Wakanda, Wakanda as this kind of global superpower, untouched by the depredations of colonialism. It's really inspirational, and it's you know part of this unintended, obviously, but the creation of Wakanda in the comics and T'Challa kind of sparked this uh, Afrofuturism kind of aesthetic art movement, which is this, you know, this kind of like far-flung, oftentimes utopian kind of sci-fi and fantasy take on on Black-centered storytelling. And I just think, you know, it just resonated, obviously, with, with many, many people. So it was an enormously entertaining movie that also meant a lot to a large segment of culture. Yeah. I mean, when you, you know, for, you know, this, not for me personally, but for the, for many people I know to see themselves reflected on the screen in that way is something that I think people just didn't think would happen. You know, they didn't think, you know, for me, you know, seeing um, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings was the same feeling. Like, I, you know, I never thought we'd see a mega budget box office tentpole centered around Asian American character, fully Asian cast. In that sense, like I understand the the feeling that people had towards the first Black Panther movie, just an ebullient feeling. Again, I I think a lot of people just didn't ever think that they'd see anything like this. So you talked about the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, being yes. sort of our biggest cultural thing, period. And this is one of the things that one of the reasons I wanted to have you on because I wanted to dig into this because numerically it's absolutely true, right? The Marvel movies are the best performing movies. Over yep. a decade, it's basically become what Disney does in addition to Marvel, in addition to Star Wars and Pixar. That's that's what they do. I've seen a gazillion of these movies. I'm now old enough that I'm taking my kids to these movies. <laughs> I like them. They like them. They're yeah. not consumed with them. That's just a thing that they watch because it's in the movie theaters. And I don't think they could have told you sort of the the back and forths of, of the you know the snap, et cetera. They're, they're vaguely familiar mm -hmm. with them. I've gone to these movies with lots of other people who don't know this stuff. They all enjoy it. 
my perception as an old guy is this is just a thing that's in theaters. And then there's a group of people like you who can speak passionately and eloquently about why this stuff is really meaningful. And I'm trying to figure out a comp for that. Is there anything else that you can think of in culture in the past where lots of people enjoy it, it means a lot to a smaller segment, but also um, pleases a much larger audience? I think Star Wars was the first kind of hint of this, you know, uh, the first three movies were obviously like mega smashes and kind of remade the movie industry, you know, along with the pictures like Jaws and stuff, yep. you know, but it created a whole universe of kind of alternate, not alternate, but, but uh, extra kind of content, you know, books, comics. Um, other stuff that added to the story outside of the three movies before Lucas ever went back in for the prequels. And it really kept that world alive in a way that was vibrant, that was all its own, that was certainly a lot more focused and for the hardcore fans, but that is now informing the kind of larger storytelling. And I think uh, in a way, they kind of backed into the thing that Marvel started doing almost off off the bat because of you know, the, the particular structure of adapting comic books and a comic book archive that stretches back, you know, half a century before they ever started really trying to mirror the things that the comics do on the screen. Not talking about, like, the action and the, and the characters and the costumes. I'm talking about, like, the way the movies interconnect, the way a solo movie like Iron Man will then intersect with Captain America right. and the Hulk and the Avengers movies. That kind of storytelling, serialized storytelling with crossover stories that, you know, we think of as, you know, those, those are what the Avengers movies, right? That's when all the, all the heroes come together. That's the thing that comics have been doing for a while, and it just had never been tried in this kind of, on, in this kind of scale on the screen. Uh, but I think Star Wars is kind of like the predecessor of all these things. Yeah, I mean, I, d I remember going to Endgame and with a bunch of other people who definitely had only seen some of the movies, and they're like, do I have to see 18 other movies before I see this with someone <laughs> else? And the answer is no, you don't. And I understand why the business has moved to, you know, we're going to take existing IP and, and that's what's going to be our business. And, and Disney's explicitly said, we've bought Marvel and Lucasfilm and Pixar, and that is only what we're making now. And these are going to be giant mm -hmm. movies that a lot of people are going to appeal to. It's always been interesting to me that they're comic-based because comics have always been a nerd subculture thing. And, and, yeah. and I'm, I'm a nerd and I know lots of nerds, but I used to go to comic stores and they were kind of empty. There weren't a lot of people in them. This is pre-digital. And when my kids were old enough to go to comic stores, we we kept we went in, and they were this same comics guy there from the Simpsons movie. <laughs> yeah. Simpsons shows were there. They're still empty. I get that it's now digital. But it's hard for me to reconcile. This seems to be still a very niche bit of content, but it's obviously not niche because it's being seen by a gazillion people all over the world. What, what am I not understanding about the, the link? Well, first of all, I think that one of the things you're noticing is that there just were a lot of barriers to entry for comics. Great stories, great characters, with obviously the potential for massive appeal, but how do you get them? How do you catch up on the story? Where's the comic shop? Who do I ask? What characters am I even interested in? There's so many, you know, the, beyond the, the big two of Marvel and DC and all the other kind of like image uh, you know, uh, Top Cow, you could go on and on in the indie comics. Like, where do I start? What do I do? Um, and that means 
you've got to interact with whoever the uh, the comics clerk. I've always had great experiences. The thing I've found as a person who came of age right before in, in my comics reading, right before the big crash of the 90s when everything, the bottom fell out of every kind of collectible, Beanie Babies, the trading cards and comics. They're helpful people. Like unlike the, <laughs> unlike the uh, <laughs> the character of The Simpsons, yes. they they need your business. They want your business. They want to help you. They want to help you find a great story. Um, but I think there's barriers to that. Whereas what's happened now is you take those wonderful stories that were kind of like ensconced away in this these kind of like hidden places in the stacks, and you don't know where to start. Uh, and you give people a starting place, and you blow it up on the big screen, and you give it to them where they where where they want to gather in the movies and where they can easily see it in the, through digital and streaming. And it turns out that they've got a ton of appeal. And on top of that... If we bring it to you instead of making you go if find If we bring it, it to you. And on top of that, as I was saying previously, this is a... Marvel in particular, this is this is a company with, you know, 60 years of, of history and fans. So while you know you go into the your comic shop and there's not a lot of people in there, you multiply that by, you know, 60 years mm-hmm. and there was a huge reservoir of fandom that had accrued over those years who couldn't wait to see this stuff on the big screen and have been waiting for stuff like people like me who never thought that you know I'd see a movie like Endgame on the, on the big screen. So I think it, it, it's those two things. There is now been over the last year, so we've gone through a decade, so a decade of, of Marvel movies in, in this era. And in the last year or so, there's been this thing bubbling up that maybe we've exhausted audience interest in this stuff. And maybe that extends to the Marvel shows on TV, um, two films in particular, Eternals and the most recent Thor movie. I think the Eternals did very poorly and the Thor movie did okay. So there's this meme that, you know, maybe we've reached the end of this cycle. So I'm curious what you think of that and what Wakanda, how Wakanda fits into that. Well, first of all, everything ends, right? You know, like this, this too will end. Uh, you know, westerns were the dominant genre of American storytelling from the like the pulps in the late 19th century all the way up to like 1969, mid 70s, whatever. That came to an end. This will come to an end too. But I think that, and certainly people, I think will get eventually we'll get tired of it to to a certain degree but i also think that it's here to stay on some kind of level now will there be corrections i think certainly um but i think the power and the benefit of the kind of structure they've created with all of these movies is that everything kind of matters you know thor the dark world was not a not a good movie and yet some of the stuff that happened in that movie, the second Thor movie, has been greatly influential to that franchise and the MCU writ large. So you feel rewarded as a fan for watching something that maybe not a lot of people watched or was critically panned or whatever because you understand how this works as a nerd fan that something in there is going to come back later and it's going to be rewarded and your friend who's sitting next to you is, what's that? And you're going to be able to turn to them and say, Oh, that's so and so from the Eternals movie. They, you know, that was like a you saw it in the background of this or that or what have you. And people love to do that. People love connecting with each other. They love knowing that stuff. They love being rewarded for paying attention. So, I, you know, listen. I think that I think that eventually this will end uh, and will come down to earth just on some level. But I also think this is a kind of this is a genre and a kind of storytelling that people really enjoy, and it's just going to be around. 
Do you think there is another mass cultural thing in the horizon? Or, or or we continue to sort of atomize and, and we're all mm. doing our own individual TikToks and it'll be harder to gather a group of people <laughs> for for an MCU movie or whatever the next thing is after that. Yeah, I remember when Game of Thrones was coming to an end, right? Um, you know, a lot of the, the talk was, oh, this is the end of monoculture. We're not going to see this anymore. Um, no, it, as as fractious and as atomized in your word as as we are and as we're becoming and as, you know, as our tastes are, you know, there's people that are famous on YouTube that I've never, ever heard of, you know, all of which is to say is I, I don't know what the next monoculture thing will be, but people crave that and it will be something. Something will arise that will once again be a, be a massive uh, international box office smash, a TV smash that people will be watching and talking about and gathering you know, both physically and digitally around spaces to talk about that that will that will happen again and again and again and again for as long as we're telling stories. Thanks again to Jason, thanks again to Sarah Fryer, thanks again to Jelani for putting all this together. And thanks to our advertisers for bringing us this podcast for free. Just like Elon Musk, we love advertisers and we don't threaten to name and shame them. Okay, this is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.